0: Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today, we look at the critical issue of electricity supply, particularly the role of natural gas, and even more particularly, the rural electric cooperatives and how they are affected by national policy. If you don't know about the national rural electric cooperatives, they are one of those wonderful but little herd of things that keep the lights on in all the rural areas of this country and in some cases areas that were rural but have now become quite urban for example outside of washington northern virginia electric cooperative is in fact a large utility company although it started when that was a farming area and there was no other way of getting electricity there are altogether i believe 900 rural electric cooperatives in the country with about 46 million users. Uh, Today we're going to talk to Dwayne Heine, CEO of Tri-State Generation and Transmission Association. Tri-State's Generation and Transmission Association is located in Colorado, close to Denver. David Naylor, President and CEO of Rayburn Electric Cooperative. Rayburn Electric Cooperative is close to Dallas in Rockwall, Texas and Clinton Bentz, Chair of the U.S. Energy Practice of Dentons. Let's begin with you, David. How severely are you affected or your members affected by government mandates or impending mandates requiring you to stop using coal and, more importantly, natural gas? So,
1: thanks, Llewellyn. From a a coal standpoint, Rayburn, uh, we actually do not have any... Uh, uh, coal exposure, so that that's not going to be an issue for us, but uh, certainly here in Texas, natural gas is a is a vital uh, fuel that's utilized and we have uh, a share of natural gas in our portfolio. Um, And so that that definitely has an impact on on us. Um, Rayburn actually has, the last uh, couple of years, we've been adding a substantial amount of uh, renewables and and solar in particular to our mix. And so, you know, a lot of the discussion that's going on on the national stage, uh, Rayburn has already been actively pursuing that. In fact, by 2025, we'll be 30% renewables, uh, even without any uh, government mandates. So I think it's one of the beauties of the, the cooperative program. Uh, you get a listen to the, what the members uh, desire, and uh, fortunately, in Raven's case, we've been able to to implement a lot of those uh, uh, practices and roll them into our, into our portfolio on an economical basis. What's the
0: situation, gwen in your actually four states, but you're called tri state, but I believe you reach into four separate states. What is your situation? You have both coal and natural gas, according to my research.
2: Yes uh, alone so tri state serves in four states uh, members in Nebraska and Wyoming and Colorado and New Mexico and each of those states has significantly different energy policies both New Mexico and Colorado are moving rapidly to decarbonize Wyoming is moving more slowly as they try to preserve coal jobs and for tri-state the common ingredient we can find for all those members that we serve is to be reliable and affordable while making a very rapid energy transition. Uh, just like David, we're changing quickly and uh, moving away from fossil fuels by adding lots and lots of wind and solar. So while we have coal and natural gas in our mix, we're also adding significant amounts of wind and solar so that by 2024, we'll be 50% clean energy across our entire four-state footprint.
0: Twin Fins, we are making this program against a background of severe energy shortage in Europe and especially in the United Kingdom where they're going to have a very cold and very difficult winter, and some people may be without heat. The proximate causes are a shortage of uh, natural gas from Russia, but also there has been a wind drought in the North Sea. Does that have an effect here? Well,
3: well, Llewellyn, first of all, let me compliment you on bringing in these two great leaders from the uh, co-op movement and recognizing that... uh, electric co-ops really are kind of the miracle of rural america having brought electricity soon they'll bring broadband and electric vehicles and many other great things to rural america with respect to europe and and lessons learned i think that it's essential for us to move in the direction of renewables but probably the most important word for the next decade is going to be resilience, and so while we are developing renewables and intermittent resources and battery storage, we really need to support uh, resilience throughout this country, throughout the world, and I I would say that's one of the great challenges. In addition, or as a complement to decarbonization,
0: I have before me a letter from Jim Matheson, Chief Executive Officer. Of the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. That's the central unit, the trade association, if you will, the lobbying arm of rural electric cooperatives in Washington. And he is writing to uh, the House, to the House leadership in energy, saying that the president's plan is too severe, that the rural electric cooperatives cannot meet it if the infrastructure portion of the president's plan is uh, passed as it is now. Uh, is that true? And what is the answer to that? If you can't meet it, what happens? Uh, David.
1: So for us, I think that is uh, an accurate statement, uh, Llewellyn. Uh, you know, to, to Clint's point, there's there's got to be a balance between what, uh, you know, how fast we're, we're implementing this, with making sure that the system is reliable and people have power when that switch comes on. Uh, certainly here in Texas, we're still very mindful of Winter Storm Uri. And, you know, the re- renewables uh, certainly were not the, the the problem. All all resources failed in that situation. But it just goes to serve that uh, if, if we start having a true dependency on one particular type of resource or... Uh, intermittency, in particular, that it, it's a challenge for us to to face and still meet the needs of uh, of our members and the electricity that they that they need just to sustain um, their daily lives. Uh, it it's rolls out awful fast.
0: Dwayne, in South Central Africa, which I don't expect you to know anything about. There's the mighty Zambezi River, and on it is the mighty Kariba Dam, which is the largest impoundment of water on Earth, which was built in the last days of the British Empire to provide electricity for the neighboring countries, which are now respectively Zambia and uh, Zimbabwe, where I was born and grew up, so I have an interest. Uh, However, This great source of electricity has not been dependable for the last five years because there has been severe drought, rather the same situation that the Brits are facing in the North Sea, where something assumed in nature to be absolute and absolutely dependable is not dependable. Uh, Should we build against that? Should we not put too much confidence in renewables which are variable and are dependent on forces outside of human control?
2: Well, I think it's a matter of diversity of resources. So just like we wouldn't put all our retirement money in one stock, we don't want to put all of our energy resources in one resource. So diversity helps. When we think about the February event of Storm Uri, uh, we had similar impacts in Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico. And yet, uh, because we could not necessarily have to just burn natural gas when it went to 100 times its normal price, we could fall back on fuel oil. Having that diversity of mix keeps you from having impacts and preserves reliability in a wonderful way. Uh, Wind is a great resource. It doesn't blow all the time. Solar is a great resource. We're still going to be able to get to an 80% level of decarbonization in our our territory in Colorado by the end of the decade. So come pretty close to meeting the president's plan, but it's because we built a very diverse portfolio so we have resources to lean on when, when one particular one is not available.
0: How are you going to do that? Isn't it just wind and solar that are the options, and maybe some uh, residual uh, hydropower?, or?
2: Well, right now in our resource plan, we're looking at keeping some fossil fuels there for those weeks when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. We need multiple days of energy and and you just can't get that from batteries today. But the, you know by having a balanced mix with hydro and wind and solar and coal and gas, you actually can bring all those together and get to a 70 to 80% clean energy mix. Again, because you have the multiple resources they cover for one another.
0: And one of the things, David, that people don't realize because Texas is the home of fossil fuels and has been our basic source of them for so many decades is that in fact, there is a lot of wind installed in Texas and a lot of solar. what is your future? How do how have you hedged the future with diversity among um, supplies?
1: So I think uh, there, there's, uh, you know, there's also a lot of hot air in Texas too that we're trying to, to, to work <laughs> but around. I'm but, glad
0: you said that and you didn't.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, Llewellyn, that's definitely a, a concern of, of ours. And, you know, we're taking the view right now of uh, everything's on the table. So we're looking at, uh, you know, resources that are dispatchable, we're looking, and as I mentioned, we've added uh, about 300 megawatts of solar to our mix, which is about 30% uh, of our overall uh, uh, peak. Uh, I'll tell you that one of the challenges that we have, and we, we are very interested in adding resources to our mix, and in particular, we're, we are, we're attractive to the, to the solar and to the renewables. Uh, but trying to find uh, developers and projects that are being proposed and uh, getting a seat at the table can be a challenge, especially right now as you have uh, more and more of the corporate entities uh, such as Amazon and Google who are uh, acquiring power uh, and renew- renewables just as part of their uh, ESG uh, mix, uh, trying to get a seat at the table for for solar projects that are being developed that uh, haven't already been spoken for. Uh, um,
0: spell out ESG. for the benefit uh, Environmental, of is, social,
1: and government.
0: You say it's hard to get a seat at the table. I'm not quite sure what you mean by that.
1: Sure. Um, so when, when developers are proposing these and looking at uh, these particular sites or locations for solar projects in particular, uh, a lot of times uh, they will go and Uh, Somebody like, and talk to the Amazons of the world and the Googles of the world. And some of these, uh, we're getting a lot of data centers here locating to Texas. And they're coming with these projects already uh, entirely bought by these these corporate entities. And so uh, while Rayburn is a willing uh, buyer, uh, trying to find somebody who has capacity or Uh, room at the on these projects to sell to us. uh, Sometimes that's a challenge.
0: That's a very interesting uh, development because it's not generally realized that the utility space is getting crowded with new players. How do you see this, Clint? You're a man who covers many utilities and have been you've been at it for many decades. Thank you, Llewellyn.
3: I I think that um... The phenomenon David just described is true in a good way. It's really good to see corporations having to focus on environmental social governance and become and and really move forward on decarbonization. I think that um, David and Dwayne really represent leaders in their cooperatives and within the electric cooperative movement in moving toward decarbonization. I think there's going to be a lot more development with renewables. I'm hoping that technological development comes along with uh, battery storage as well so that we get longer duration energy storage which would help a lot and I think there will be a lot of technological development especially with the emphasis of corporations as well as utilities focusing on this really vital need. Do you think
0: that we have a sort of national hysteria about carbon and that we're moving too quickly to try to eradicate natural gas from the mix, maybe at a considerable cost.
3: In terms of concern about carbon, I, I really support that tremendously. I mean, we are really far behind on what we need to do to decarbonize in this country. Climate change is real. It's devastating and we're already seeing the effects of it, everything from huge hurricanes with greater intensity to drought and wildfires and uh, extreme weather. But at the same time, I think people that really care about climate can also care about resilience as we discussed earlier. And there needs to be um, a way to have reliable systems and resilient systems. And in order to do that, we need to be more technologically neutral, not try to pick technologies, but let them develop. And to Dwayne's point earlier, we need diversity in our um, fuel mix for generation. Uh, We need to move swiftly toward decarbonization as Tri-State and and, uh, Rayburn Electric have done but we also have to have enough generation to back that up when the wind is not blowing. And uh, you pointed out the situation in the North Sea. It also happened in California. I mean, there were 90 days in California last year when the wind wasn't blowing in 10 consecutive days. So you've got to have diversity of generation.
0: There was a double whammy in California because you also have a drought, so you don't have a hydro. Uh, that you anticipate. Dwayne, natural gas is in a sense a way of storing energy. If you keep the, the turbines in
2: in reserve and you have a lot of compressed natural gas, you have storage. It's, it's stored energy and it's what carries us through those times when the wind and the solar isn't there. It's really essential to keep it in the mix, not to send it away. But we're not gonna have to use it that much. You know, as we make this transition, we're going to massively overbuild the wind and the solar and the renewables. In 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 our system in particular, we're going to have more than our total capacity in just those resources alone, but that's because they're not always there. We have to overbuild them. It also means there's a lot of hours when there's going to be more than we need for just our needs, and that's why we're looking to partner regionally and actually move this power across multiple states. David,
0: how... Uh electric utilities in your sector responding to the idea of micro grids. is one of the defenses against a grid failure.
1: I think that's the challenge uh, Llewellyn was with, uh, with the micro grids is uh, having areas where uh, in, in a lot of ways they're still connected to the grid, but they may have self-sustaining resources where they're able to uh, if if there is a problem, then that particular localized area still has it's, it's the resiliency question, uh, issue that that Clint was bringing up. They have that that resiliency. Uh, in some ways, the area that we're in uh, in ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. I mean, we're, we're we're a little bit larger than your typical microgrid, but within the state of within the United States, we are a effectively a microgrid within within that organization. But uh, Uh, You know, it's uh, that is something that's interesting that we we're looking at and uh, and having those conversations, Uh, particularly, I think what you find uh, Llewellyn is uh, around some of these critical loads, uh, such as hospitals and and nursing homes, you know, how how can we help ensure uh, that resiliency, particularly in those critical areas uh, where, you know, life making decisions uh, need electricity to, to continue
0: you're in a very fast-growing area aren't you David yes um, and so it's a, it's not only essential for you to reduce carbon but also to acquire new sources of supply
1: that, that's exactly right I mean well we're we're growing uh, you know in fact I've got one member who's was talking to, commenting about growing five percent and that's amazing for most co-ops across the nation except I've got two other members that are growing at ten percent um, you know the Dallas area is uh, certainly uh, we've seen significant growth, but uh, Lowell, you're exactly right. It it makes it a challenge on the power supply acquisition, and uh, even as we continue to add resources to our mix, um, we're, we're we're still trying to, uh, in some ways, playing catch up.
0: And um, Dwayne, back in our energy crisis, and you're almost too young to recall it, but. Back in our energy, so like kind of. You. <laughs> uh, we were looking at all sorts of incredible ideas for new ways of making energy. Magnetohydrodynamics, oh, was yeah. one. Uh, ocean thermal gradients was another. Uh, uh, hot rocks, the idea of geothermal, not from the traditional geysers, but from uh, places in the Earth where there's just a lot of volcanic rock and it's very hot. And yet they've all somewhat fallen away. Geothermal is a sort of mature industry with some growth, but not a lot. Uh, And we've come down, and we say renewable now, to two sources, solar and wind. Uh, Are we going to see more? Can you add to that portfolio?
2: I'm, I'm excited about it. So, you know, we see what's happened with solar and wind. The way those prices have come down, we can now source those resources less than $0.02 cents per kilowatt hour wholesale to our system. But I think what's coming is new forms of storage. Uh, we're going to need multiple days of stored energy, and that's not really readily available with lithium ion, at least not cost-effectively today. But we can imagine getting to a hydrogen economy, or even an ammonia economy, or a synthetic, hy- uh, synthetic methane from hydrogen, uh, which would allow us to store vast quantities of energy on-site at a plant, uh, similar to having a coal stockpile today. One of the reasons we like coal is for resiliency. It's there on site, no supply chain risk. When you need it, you can put it through the boiler and make energy. But we know the days of coal are limited. So we need something to replace it that has that same kind of long, long duration storage, multiple days and uh, ammonia from hydrogen might actually be one of those solutions.
0: One of the other things which does not apply in your service territory or in David's service territory, but one which was greatly Looked at and talked about back in the energy crisis was ocean. Ocean waves, ocean buoys, all sorts of clever ideas to capture the energy of the ocean, none of which tended to work out terribly well. I once looked at a hundred different gadgets that captured, but none of them did it efficiently and cheaply enough. They were efficient, but they weren't cheap. You had to gather all this and You had a huge other impacts like shipping, uh, recreational use of beaches, et cetera, which nobody wanted to contemplate. Um, I'm interested when you said ammonia, and that is not generally mentioned. Uh, So please come forward and explain
2: it. it. So it's a bit odd to talk about ammonia, but when we think about hydrogen, a lot of people talk about taking the surplus, the excess solar, the excess wind that we're going to have in this country, because as a nation, we're gonna overbuild those resources. So what do we do when there's too much of it? An April night when the wind's blowing great, well, we can make hydrogen from electrolysis, but uh, the hydrogen is not easy to store. And there's actually more hydrogen atoms in ammonia, which is NH3, than there is in hydrogen itself, like a, a gallon of liquid hydrogen. So it's much easier to make the conversion from hydrogen to ammonia and store liquid ammonia, which you can put, you know, 20 million gallon tank farm at your plant site, then later when you need the energy, you can actually burn the ammonia in an internal combustion engine or uh, separate the hydrogen back out and burn it in a turbine.
0: Thank you. Uh, Clint, this is a program called White House Chronicle. What is the government's attitude to the rural electric cooperatives? They've always had a lot of support in Congress but this letter from Jim Matheson, Chief Executive of our NRECA suggests that they're being overlooked in the creation of the new energy bill or the new infrastructure bill if that is passed.
3: Well, I think we're going to need a lot of support on infrastructure. I am seeing uh, support for rural broadband in the infrastructure bill. Uh, there needs to be support for grid modernization. I'm hopeful that the infrastructure bill, as ultimately passed, will really pay attention to rural America. And there's no better structure for getting essential services to rural America than the electric cooperative structure. So I hope that, um, that uh, the NRECA, the National Association of Rural Electric Cooperatives, which uh, Mr. Matheson heads, I hope they will be successful in their lobbying.
0: We are somewhat coming towards the end of our time. So I'd like to ask all three of you as a a general question, uh, what do you see the future looking like in terms of, how are you going to cope with a surge of demand for electric vehicles, uh, a tremendous need to be more resilient than has been proved to be the case this year, where we've had Ida, Henry, and of course, Yuri terrible storms that have taken lives and left people in the dark for very long periods of time. Uh, Let's begin with you, David.
1: So I think we're going to see a lot more uh, demand side type uh, responses where we're bringing the consumer, that consumer at the end of the line into the mix. Uh, I, I think, you know, the centralized, the larger projects still have a place, but I, I really see us, uh, you know, trying to bring those guys who, you know, have the electric cars, uh, and you know, can they modify their usage and give them the price signal to be able to see that and to respond and to, to, uh, you know, as those those electric cars, you know, can we can we help utilize that as an energy source for a you know short period of time to offset some of the of the electric needs that they have. So uh, I really see a, a, this being more of a dynamic uh, response with not just uh, the generation side, but also the, the consumer really having a lot more of say and a lot more uh, 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 just to influence in terms of, of their own individual consumer needs.
2: And Dwayne. David said it so well. I mean, I'm really excited about the new Ford F-150 electric truck. It's faster than a conventional truck, and I think it's going to drive demand for charging stations in the rural areas that co-ops serve. And when we get those charging stations into the rural areas, that's going to eliminate the range anxiety issues for people from both urban and rural settings. I, I really think it's going to drive a transformation. Um, we're ready to take that challenge, and uh, you know, the number one issue for us, stay reliable. Stay resilient through all that transition. And Clint,
0: what are your general thoughts going forward for the role both of the, of the uh, rural electric cooperatives, but also for the small public power entities struggling for a place at the table, as David so eloquently said?
3: Well, David and Duane described a pretty important trend now that will be uh, beneficial. Uh, for rural America, but also um, municipal systems and and uh, uh, investor-owned utility systems as well. And that is what they've been describing is distributed energy resources, which will be the opposite of big central station plants. It will be uh, on the customer side of the meter. It will include um, rooftop solar and battery storage and electric vehicles and, and uh, uh, those type of developments, which I think will make a big difference.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today on White House Chronicle. Please come back, all three of you. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify,
2: Stitcher. Wherever you listen, we are there.